The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to pray, make sure we're in fellowship, get our focus on the Lord and on his word and uh, ready to study the Word, to be strengthened, encouraged, edified by the study of the Word this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that we have Your Word, that it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and Your Word reveals to us Your plans and purposes and history at helps us to understand how you work in our lives and how you work in history, both overtly and covertly. And, Father, now as we continue our study in Genesis, we pray that you'd help us to understand the important doctrinal principles that are uh, demonstrated, revealed, exemplified in this passage, that we might be strengthened and encouraged by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we're in Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter... 38, and there is no story in the Old Testament, I think, that is more bizarre and probably X-rated, that's got your attention already, right, than this particular story. It's a story of immorality and perversion and cultural distance for us. I mean, there's things going on in this, in this particular episode that are so far removed from our culture from a, let's say, a Mosaic culture in Israel after the Mosaic Law, uh, it is um, difficult for us to understand some of the details that are going on here just because of that uh, divide 3,000 years ago and totally uh, different culture and norms and standards. But what we see here is that this is a story that exemplifies divine providence, and that's something that... I'm emphasizing all the way through this Joseph episode is the providence of God in the background. As we go through the whole Joseph narrative, there isn't that much of an overt involvement of God in the lives of Joseph or in the life of the family. But we do see his hand behind the scenes uh, protecting the family, providing for them, taking care of them. We see instances, as we do in this passage, of how he works out divine discipline and 
uh, fairly ironic ways that uh, exemplify the principle of Scripture that we, we reap what we sow. Now, to correctly interpret this passage, we have to understand it in the context of the structure of Genesis. See, in Genesis chapter 37, the focus shifted to the descendants of Jacob. In Genesis 37.2, we read, this is the Toledot of Jacob. This is the geneal- or this is what happens to the generations of Jacob. This is the uh, this is what happens to the descendants of Jacob. And as we've seen in the past, when we saw this is the generation of Terah, and it focused on Abram. And we saw this is the generation of Isaac, and it focused on Jacob. Now we come to the generation of Jacob, or this is what the genealogy of Jacob, the descendants of Jacob, the focus is on Joseph. And from Genesis 37 to 50, every single chapter focuses on Joseph, except for chapter 38. Chapter 38... We put Joseph on hold while he is a slave of Potiphar's in Egypt, and the camera switches back over to what is happening in the land with the family, specifically in the family of his brother Judah. And so we have to answer the question, what's God doing here? Why is this stuck here in the middle? And we'll see that. So to correctly interpret the passage, we have to understand it in the context of the structure of Genesis. And first of all, this means that it has to be understood within the theme of Genesis. And the theme of Genesis is blessing and cursing. We've seen that God created the heavens and the earth in the first chapter, in the first in the introduction from Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and he blessed everything that he had made on the seventh day. And then what happened? Then you have um, Adam and Eve come along and eat the fruit, and you have the cursing in Judges in Genesis chapter 3. That's followed by the blessing of God and his provision of uh, salvation. It is yet future, but you have the promise of salvation. And then you have... Uh, cursing again, judgment at the flood. But there is blessing in that God uh, blesses Noah and his family and he uh, reestablishes the covenant with them when they come off the ark. And then God calls out, there's judgment at Babel and then there's the uh, calling out of Abraham and the blessing upon Abraham that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so this theme of blessing and cursing goes throughout uh, Genesis. We have to understand blessing. Blessing is one of those words that's become overused. I wish I could find a better word. Uh, it's not happiness. Some people try, and, and there are some translations that translate blessing happiness, but happiness is something that is too fleeting for us. I mean, we think of happiness as just uh, ephemeral joy that comes and goes. Uh, it's not the deep joy that Scripture has, but blessing isn't joy. Blessing is really being in the place of life and happiness, enrichment, prosperity, where we feel the quality of life because of our relationship to God, even though we may be in uh, very uh, undesirable circumstances. So blessing is not to be defined in terms of material prosperity or material circumstances. It's ultimately a focus on the soul. Cursing, on the other hand, has to do with the imposition 
of a barrier to life and happiness, and often this is judicial. A curse in the scriptures, biblical, when we talk about Genesis 3 as a curse of God, we're talking about the uh, execution of divine justice, divine judgment. Uh, we don't use the term curse in the Bible um, in an occult sense like juju black magic and I'm going to put you under an evil eye curse, that kind of a thing. Uh, when God curses man, it is a, and it's an expression of the outworking of divine justice and judgment upon, upon sin. Now, one of the other things that we see as we go through this process in Genesis is that, and I'm going to speak very uh, uh, phenomenologically here, uh, anthropomorphically, that as God works out his plan and purpose in history, we consistently see how he makes adjustments. Let's put that in quotes, adjustments, to related to sinful decisions that man makes. But these adjustments are not because God is taken aback or by surprise by the sinful decisions or failures of man because God in his omniscience knows all the knowable and he knew from eternity past all the failures and flaws and problems that man would have. And I think it's important to recognize that God structured history and man and the whole interaction between the will of the creature and as subordinate to the sovereign control of the creator in those two different spheres, the cre- maintaining that creator-creature distinction in such a way that God can maneuver history and bring about that which he intends to bring about, while at the same time allowing creatures to uh, fulfill their individual responsibilities and to be accountable for the decisions that they make in such a way that that there's true contingency in history. Nevertheless, that contingency is not pure random chance and chaos, which is what you have in pagan systems of thought, but that God is in ultimate control of the destiny of man, and he works out his plans and his purposes in history. That's what Romans 8.28 is all about, for we know that he works all things together for good. Not that all things are good, but in the midst of all of the evil decisions that man makes, all the failures that that, uh, man uh, makes, God still ultimately works out his plan and purpose, and he is in control. So that... When we read in Romans 8.28 that God, that he is the one that works all things together for good, that all things includes our sinful decisions as well as our good decisions. God's not running around uh, constantly trying to tweak things. Uh-oh, they did this over here. Let me go tweak this over here. Uh-oh, they did that over there, and I'm going to go tweak this over there. Uh, it's, he, is, he is so infinite in his knowledge and his power and his ability that he has everything under perfect control. Where we get into problems in trying to sort this out in our own thinking is that we try to uh, relate God's causative control and define it the same way we define the causation at a human or creaturely level. 
And so we can't think of causation or control in ways other than that which which manipulates and dom- dominates in a deterministic manner. And this is where you get into certain problems in trying to explain the difference between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. You have to maintain that distinction between God's creaturely causation, which is totally other, totally different, categorically different from creaturely causation. We realize that man has volitional capacity. He makes decisions, and this brings, introduces chaos and calamity into the world. But God has constructed things in such a way that he controls the chaos of evil and that the way, the system that he set up in terms of human history handles the chaos that comes from man's bad decisions. And in this episode, we see a classic example within the family that God has called out, this family that God has uh, established and, and chosen to be the family through whom he is going to, to bring the Messiah, through whom he is going to bring blessing to all mankind, through whom he is going to br- uh, reveal himself. They're going to be the custodians of revelation that in this family... Uh, they make numerous bad decisions and sinful decisions, and there are so many failures. And we have a tendency to look at them, but we have to realize we're not all that different from uh, from what's going on uh, with them. And so we see that despite their flaws and failures, and they're, uh, they're just incredible. We look at this chapter and we see what is going on here. We just sort of scratch our heads. But we realize that God is working and grace dominates. Now, we don't even hear God's name isn't mentioned through this whole chapter. God's completely in the background. And that gives us another example of how God is working in history. So the first thing in terms of context is this whole general thing that's going on in, in Genesis in terms of blessing and cursing and how as man continuously makes bad decisions, we could think our way through Genesis in terms of bad decisions from Eve's bad decision to Adam's bad decision to Cain's bad decision to Noah's bad decision to the bad decision of Babel, uh, various bad decisions. Abraham made bad decisions. Isaac made bad decisions. Jacob made. And now we're down here with, with Judah. So that's the first context. The second context is more immediate, and that's the inheritance struggles that are going on inside this family because they have been promised an inheritance package from God that's encapsulated within the Abrahamic covenant that is just incredible. And so you have this initial move by Abraham. He's promised a seed, so he tries to... Uh, make it happen on its own with Hagar and we have the Hagar solution which is a lousy solution and produces all the problems we have in the world today between the Arabs and the Jews you have uh, other uh, (coughs) competition between Esau and Jacob and all of the deception and the backstabbing and the manipulation that went on from from Jacob and we studied that all through the uh, Esau-Jacob cycle and now we're continuing to see that work itself out in the Joseph narrative. And this is the uh, one of the major issues going on in chapter 37 is that, is that uh, Jacob is identifying Joseph as the one who will be the recipient of the blessing, the inheritance. He will be designated 
And that's the, what the indication is by giving him the coat uh, of many colors is that, that Jacob is showing favoritism to Joseph and he's indicating that Joseph will be the firstborn son. Now when we use that term firstborn son, the first thing that comes to your mind is firstborn in terms of order or chronology. But that's not the primary meaning of the term firstborn son. It is firstborn in terms of, of position, in terms of prominence. And so even a, some, a son that is second, third, fourth, fifth in line can be designated the firstborn son because the firstborn son gets the double portion, the double, the double inheritance. And so what's happening here is behind, in the whole episode with the brothers' hostility towards Joseph is because he's got uh, ten brothers ahead of him. Uh, Benjamin is just a, still a baby or infant or young child at this time, but the other ten brothers are all adults, and they're all ahead of him in the line of inheritance order. You might say you just have to follow the money to understand what the problem is, and that's what's going on here is that they all want to get their piece of the pie before Joseph does, and so that's in the background. So let's just, let me just cover a couple of other introductory issues here. Why is this here? Why do we need to understand this, this whole context? First of all, isn't that great? I just love it when I get up here and I have a whole page of notes that's missing. There it is. Nope, that's not it. Okay, we're just going to go off the top of my head here. That that's part of it is the context struggle. Now let's go on and look at the uh, just the purpose. Why do we need? Why is this here? First of all, it's here to remind the reader again of the assimilation of Israel with the Canaanite culture. To remind Israel once again of the assimilation with the Canaanite culture. J- Judah, who is the fourth fourth born son to Leah leaves the family, the first verse says, and he goes down to uh, d- down to the, a Canaanite city and takes a Canaanite wife, Shua. He is, he's the first one openly to assimilate completely with uh, the Canaanite culture. This is a problem. They're supposed to live separately from the Canaanites, and they're assimilating. So that puts the seed, the promise, the family in danger. Second... This episode illustrates uh, the paganism and the carnality in Jacob's family in contrast to the obedience and the chasteness of, of Joseph. Because in the next chapter, we read about how Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph, and he flees from her. But in this chapter, we see the seduction of Jacob by a roadside prostitute. Third, the story in chapter 38 reveals the background of the clan of Perez. Jacob is, uh, I mean, jo- uh, excuse me, Judah, I get all these J names confused. Judah is going to have twins through Tamar. There's only two sets of twins in all of the Bible, Esau and Jacob and uh, the twins born to Tamar. And what we see here is that when we look down the road, the divine viewpoint interpretation from Scripture of the birth of Perez is that this is a line of blessing. Now, we look at what goes on in this chapter. It's like, what's going on here? 
These people are really messed up, but this is going to be the line of blessing, as we'll see in just a second. Uh, fourth reason that this is here is to record for us the inauspicious beginnings of the tribe of Judah. When I think of Judah, maybe you're the same way, I think of the lion of the tribe of Judah. I think the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah. Jacob's prophecy about the tribe of Judah in Genesis chapter 49, which I can't wait to get to, and that is, we think of Judah because Judah is the tribe from which the Lord Jesus Christ comes. But this is not a very good beginning, folks. I mean, Judah is just, I mean, they're just as messed up as they can be. And what does that remind us of? It's grace. We're all just as messed up as, as Judah is or anybody else because we're all fallen. And it's just grace. So it records the inauspicious beginnings of the tribe of Judah from which the Lord Jesus Christ will eventually come. Which leads to point five, that uh, it magnifies the immeasurable grace of the God that we serve. When we read this, we need to, on the one hand, we say, what? These people are really messed up. And on the other hand, God is working in them, and he turns the judgment discipline here into blessing. And six, the absence of any mention of God in the story does not mean that God is not involved. On the contrary, what we see again and again is the unseen hand of God in divine guidance. See, everybody gets all caught up in divine guidance is God giving you some kind of green light or red light as to what to do or not to do. And what we see through this whole thing is God is working out his plan and purposes, and his plan and purposes never really gets jeopardized in history despite human failure. We have to realize that much of history is directed by God in a covert manner. Much of history is directed by God in a covert manner. He is not appearing on every mountaintop in history telling people what they're supposed to do. He's working behind the scenes in terms of what is called divine providence. And the same way much of the divine guidance for the believer is get given immediately through the Scripture and not immediately through dreams and visions, not through the Urim or Thummim later on or through direct revelation. Very few Old Testament saints got direct revelation. And those that did didn't get it all the time. It was, as we saw with Abraham, there might be ten years go by in between some of these theophanies. Now this is made clear in that the historic outworking of the Judah-Tamar union brings about the ancestral line of the royal house of, of Judah. Here is Judah who gets seduced by his daughter-in-law who's, he's, she's been married to two of his sons. They both died the sin unto death. And he has basically relegated her to a life of, uh, of celibacy because of his own selfishness. And so she goes through the process of disguising herself as a common uh, street hooker to seduce him, to force him into fulfilling his uh, family responsibilities of uh, providing a husband for her one way or the other. See, he was supposed to provide a husband through the third son, Sheila. We'll get into this in a minute. He was supposed to provide a husband for her through the third son, Sheila, or release her. But what he does is he says, you've got to go home and, and, um, and live with your father. He basically uh, condemns her to a life 
of celibacy and because of his own refusal to assume or to accept the responsibilities as the the head of the clan what's made uh, what's interesting about all this is that in the historic outworking of the Judah Tamar Union we developed the ancestral lineage for the royal house of Judah through Perez her son to Salmon who marries Rahab the prostitute then their line goes down to Boaz who marries Ruth the uh, Moabitess, the Gentile Moabitess, pagan, who becomes a believer. And then that line goes down to David and Bathsheba. Now these women, these four women, Tamar, uh, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba are the only four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1. See, God is showing us all this fits into this tremendous pattern that we see uh, throughout Scripture is how God is bringing about his salvation despite human flaws, human failures. He's still going to bring about a perfect Savior who is uh, without sin. We see this connection that comes up in Ruth. Now, before we go to that, I've got one slide here that's from that page of notes that was missing. principle that we see here in terms of interpretation is that there's a principle throughout um, throughout Genesis that God keeps establishing that the younger will serve the elder. That wasn't the normal status. The normal status quo is the law of primogenitor, which means the oldest son gets the lion's share of the goodies. The oldest son gets the inher- has the inheritance rights by virtue of birth order. That's comparable to human works. God's going to come along and say, no, on my plan we're going to do it different. The one who is least deserving gets the inheritance. So God reverses this in order to show it's not the human standard but divine standards at work in history. Salvation is not based on human conventions, but it's going to be based on God's plan, and God's going to work things out according to his standards. And then, for example, we see throughout this whole section that Abraham is younger than Haran, Isaac is younger than Ishmael, Jacob is younger than Esau, Joseph is younger than Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Those are the four oldest brothers that are born to Leah. The oldest is Reuben. But what's happened to Reuben? Reuben discredits himself because he goes and he, uh, he has sexual relations with his stepmother, Bilhah. And then Simeon and Levi discredit themselves because they get involved in the uh, vindictive uh, murder, massacre of all the males in Shechem after the rape of Dinah. And then Judah discredits himself in chapter 37 because he, he's the one who says, well, let's, uh, let, instead of killing Joseph, let's get the money. And so you can tell that's a little trend in his sin nature. Let's just sell him into slavery and get the money. So the four oldest are all discredited because of their sin nature. Okay. Now, when we look at how all this works together, a key verse that is, comes up at the end of Ruth. In Ruth 4.12, the elders of the city are pronouncing a blessing upon Boaz and his marriage with Ruth. And in that blessing they say, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So 
it's a everything that we have outside of Genesis 38 is very positive about Tamar and about uh, Perez and about uh, her children through Judah. So we have to uh, think about that as we go through our study. All this just sets it up because the narratives, it's a pretty simple story. We just have to understand what's happening. Genesis 38.1, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brother's ominous tone. If we're going to dramatize this, you hear the drums roll, you hear the bass uh, notes start to play in the background. Something very negative is about to happen. It's very dr- this is a very dramatic story. Jacob, Judah leaves his brother's and visits a certain Adolamite whose name was Hirah. This is, later on we find out this is one of his close friends. He's a Canaanite uh, buddy of his. And while Judah is there in Adullam, he saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. That's biblical euphemism for the fact that they had sexual relations which would bring forth uh, sons. Now this is all taking place down here in the southern part of Judah. Uh, what will later be the tribe of Judah. Uh, Adullam is somewhere between uh, Beersheba here and somewhere down to the southeast of Beersheba. Timnah is also located down in this same general vicinity. So he's going out and he's living among amongst the Canaanites. What we know about Adullam is that it was an old um, Canaanite city that was located out in the hill country of uh, Judah. This is pretty much desert now. And that there were a lot of caves in that area because later on under David, David is going to take refuge from King Saul and hide in a cave of Adullam uh, near this city. So it, the name crops up again and again as we go through, go through the Scriptures. Now, the one thing that shows up here is that Judah has absolutely no qualms about marrying outside the family. And we've seen in the history here that, that uh, uh, Sarah did not want Isaac marrying outside the family, marrying anybody who lived in the land, any of the Canaanites, because they were so perverted. And Rebekah then did not want either of her boys, either Esau or Jacob, to marry uh, any of the local girls. And when Esau married uh, Basimath, took a Canaanite wife, it just breaks her heart. And so she wants to send uh, uh, Jacob up back home to marry uh, one of the relatives back in Padan Aram. And now when we come to Jacob's sons, they th- th- this whole... Uh, uh, concern about intermarrying with the Canaanites gets lost because of their negative vol- volition. So Judah goes off on his own, completely separates from the family, and marries Shua, a Canaanite woman, and he gives birth to three sons. Er is the oldest, Onan is number two, and Shelah is the third. The sons are not born that far apart. There may have been two or three years uh, between them, but uh, it's somewhat of a of a of a cursed situation because of their the evil that they do when these boys grow up. Now that takes time, so some twenty years uh, must take place between this. So I'm not sure how to fit the chronology together uh, exactly with with uh, Joseph. I'm working through a lot of different things on chronology right now, and my head's about turned inside out. Uh, 
be, and there's a lot of different ways in which people try to uh, put this together. But this takes probably takes place right after Joseph leaves. Now Joseph is going to be a Joseph is going to be a slave for Potiphar for ten years before Potiphar's wife seduces him, and then he's going to be in jail for about three to four years at the most, and then he's going to be brought out, and then there's another seven years that go by with the uh, before the brothers finally come down. There's the seven good years and the seven bad years. So that's about 17 or 18 uh, years. So just about the time, just prior to the brothers coming down to uh, going down to Egypt to get get food is when the events, I believe, of this chapter take place. It's a it's a tight fit, but it does it does fit. So Error marries, and then all that the scripture tells us about him is that he dies the sin and the death because he does evil in the sight of the Lord. And we read in Verse 6, Then Judah took a wife for Er his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, we're not told if Tamar was uh, a Canaanite girl, but that is the indication from the text. There's nothing to suggest that there's any desire to go marry, uh, find a girl among the relatives for Er. So, um, she's probably a local Canaanite girl, but what we see is that she has a certain level of of integrity about her that is completely missing from the family of Judah. But what we're told about here is that he was did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now this phrase, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, is used some 56 times in the Old Testament. It's only found six times in the Torah. It's found one time in Genesis that's here. It's found one time in Numbers. And it's found four times in Deuteronomy. It describes this unstated evil behavior of Er here. It describes the rebellion of Israel against God at Kadesh Barnea when they refused to follow the ten, ten uh, spies and go into the land. In Deuteronomy, it twice refers to idolatry and twice it refers to transgressing the covenant. In Judges, it almost exclusively describes idolatry. In 1 Samuel 15, it describes Saul's rebellion when he fails to completely uh, slaughter all of the Amalekites, and Samuel has to come and reprimand him and tell him that the sin of rebellion is like the sin of divination. And it's used numerous times in the books of Kings and Chronicles to describe idolatry. So when this term is used, it is a serious term. The term evil is also used to describe the fact that man did evil continuously before the Lord in Genesis 6. It describes the uh, sexual sins, uh, perversion with the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis 6. And it also describes the activities of the uh, Sodomites and Sodom and Gomorrah. So whatever it was that Ur was doing, it was serious, and God took him out under the sin and to death. So they weren't very married very long, and but they did not have any children. So then Judah tells Onan to marry Tamar. Now, this is why you have to understand the whole thing with inheritance to properly interpret this, because this is usually misunderstood by most people who just go in and take this out of context. We get into the doctrine of leveret 
marriage. So I've got about six points on levirate marriage. First of all, levirate marriage is the marriage of a widow to her husband's brother. This seems very odd to us, that if you are married and your husband dies, then his brother has the right to come in and to marry you for the purpose of raising up children to the dead man's name. They're considered his, not the second, not the brother's. The term leveret derives from the Latin word for brother-in-law, levir. So the brother-in-law then, in this case Onan, is supposed to come in, marry Tamar, and the children that they have will not be considered his. The inherit, they are considered Ur's, and Ur, because he's the oldest, the oldest gets what? The oldest gets the inheritance rights. So this is the issue. You've got to follow the money, and that's what's going on here. Third, the Mosaic Law incorporated leveret marriage into the into the law in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. It's designed to protect widows in society who, who have lost their husband. They don't have a source of income. They don't have a male to protect them. And if they're childless, they don't have sons to grow up and take care of them and protect them. It's, um, and that's part of the reason for it. The book of Ruth is based on this practice, although in Ruth it's a distant relative who marries Ruth, Boaz. He's a, there was someone else in between that was closer who uh, turned down the opportunity to take up that responsibility, and so Ruth married Boaz. The Sadducees also used this law to attempt to uh, trap Jesus. Remember, this is the case where they come up and they say, okay, you have a woman and she marries a man, and the man dies, and then she marries his brother. And then he dies, and then he marries another. She marries a third brother, and he dies, and the fourth brother, he dies, fifth brother, he dies, sixth brother, he dies, seventh brother, he dies, and then they say, "Well, whose whose husband is she going to be in the resurrection?" I want to know who's investigating this situation. It's got to be something funny here. Uh, and well, and Jesus really flipped it on because he says, "Why do you care? You don't believe in the resurrection." <laughs> So, but that's the background. So this was a commonly accepted practice. It has cultural roots that go far back beyond the Mosaic Law. Leveret marriage in different shapes and forms was practiced by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Egyptians. So this was a standard procedure. The principle provided for the widow, this is the fourth point, the principle provided for the widow who was left without a husband, without protection, and without a source of income. It was designed to take care of her. Fifth, the law was also designed to protect the family inheritance. Follow the money. And there is a significant emphasis in Scripture on protecting inheritance and providing inheritance for the next generation, unlike the socialist inheritance laws of our nation, which seek to tax and confiscate and to prohibit people from accumulating wealth, the Bible recognizes that private ownership of property is the basis and foundation for wealth in a nation and that that property should be passed on without taxation from generation to generation to build wealth and to develop uh, capital. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his government. 
Oh, no. A good man leaves inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up uh, for the righteous. The point is that as parents, we should be thinking in terms of accumulating an inheritance to pass on to our children, then they accumulate, and it goes on to the next generation, and that develops generational wealth. This was a biblical, uh, biblical principle. So in light of all of this, the husband's family had an obligation to produce a male heir. If there's no male heir, then by the time the husband dies, then a brother takes over. And then if he dies, the next brother takes over. That's what's going on in this particular particular passage. So what happens as we read in verse, uh, verse 8... Judah said to Onan, go to your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. This is his familial responsibility to produce an heir and to carry on the inheritance line. But it's not going to be his. It's going to be his. All the glory is going to go to his brother heir. So Onan knew that the heir, verse 9, would not be his. Now, Tamar must have been a very attractive woman because he wanted to have sexual relations with him and enjoy the fruit of the marriage in that sense, but not the responsibility that went with it. So for Onan, it's all about selfish gratification, and it's not about uh, fulfilling responsibility. So in the tense of the of the um, verb here is that when he went into his Whenever he went into his brother's wife, that he emitted on the ground, coitus interruptus. It's not practicing birth control. Some people go to this and they say, well, this is some form of, of see, God pro- prohibits birth control. That's what's going on. It's not talking about that. It's talking about this guy is one selfish individual who refuses to uh, fulfill his family responsibilities. And so God is going to take him out under the sin unto death. As well, the thing which he did, verse 10, displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. God's serious about this thing. Remember, there were three things in the Abrahamic covenant. Land, what? Oh, golly, do you think maybe this has something to do with the Abrahamic covenant and the passing on of the generation within Abraham's family? So, you know, it's just amazing how people come to this passage and use it to go in all kinds of uh, places and applications that are irrelevant. You have to understand the context of biblical inheritance in the Abrahamic covenant. So now, Judah, who's not operating on divine viewpoint, is looking around going, man, I had one son marry her, and he's dead, and the second son marry her, and he's dead. we got a black widow syndrome going on here says, I don't want to lose my third son to her. Of course, you know, like a typical uh, father who's blinded to the evil of their own children. He doesn't uh, recognize that God's taken them out under the sin and to death because of their evil. And so he's going to try to get around this situation to avoid uh, giving Tamar to his third son. And so he says to her in verse 11, Remain a widow in your father's house till... My son Sheila is grown. Now, he never intends to let her marry Sheila. He says, go home to your father and stay there and 
we're just going to commit you to a life of celibacy now because I'm blaming you for the death of my two sons. And so what we see here is Judah is operating in a completely irresponsible, self-centered manner here, and he is treating her in an extremely unjustified manner. And that we have his reasoning in the last part of verse 11, for he said, "...lest he also die like his brothers." So Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, so three or four years goes by. It's not a lengthy amount of time. We don't have that framework within the Joseph narrative. At the most, three or four years goes by. The daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. The reason we're told that is because this means that there's no longer a chance for Judah to have a fourth son. And that, that ends it. He's got these three sons, two are dead, one's left, and God has still got a plan to go through the, the, the tribe of Judah in developing the nation, the promise to Abraham. So there's a change in circumstances. Judah's wife dies. Judah is comforted. He goes through the grief process. And now there is a huge uh, festival in Timnuts, the sheep shearing festival. It's party time. It's a great opportunity for Tamar to put everything on the line. She has been treated unfairly and unjustly. This is really bizarre for us to understand. She's been treated unfairly and unjustly. And so she uh, she has to come up with a plan in order to uh, somehow fulfill her role and to uh, have children. So she's told, look, verse 13, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And so starting in verse, with verse 11, we start focusing on Judah's dishonesty and his uh, selfishness. And what we see here is that the bad decisions that we make often put others in a position to take desperate actions to bring about what they know is the right thing. And it's his failure that puts her into... She's put between a rock and a hard place in terms of, in terms of her life because he sort of put her on the shelf and she can't remarry again because she's supposed to go to Sheila. He's not going to give her Sheila to marry him, so she just, she's just in a holding pattern and she has to uh, force the circumstances. Now, that doesn't necessarily justify the way in which she does it, but I've got a couple of things that we'll, we'll focus on there as well. The problem that we face here is that these customs are completely foreign to us, and our tendency is to cast judgment on her and what she does here. She's going to disguise herself as a common prostitute. There's a play on words here in the passage. Uh, She's referred to as a zona, and that is the word for a common uh, street whore. And then on the other hand, you have the word, uh, I think I have it up here, there it is, uh, Kedashah, which is from the Hebrew root Kadash, which means to be literally to be set apart to the service of deity. It's also the verb Kadash, which means to be holy. 
See, holy doesn't mean morally pure. Holy means to be set apart to the service of your God. You have the feminine noun applies to feminine cultic prostitutes, and the masculine noun applies to the male cult prostitutes. So you've got female cult prostitutes and male cult prostitutes in all the perversion of the uh, cultic, uh, the fertility cult of the Canaanites. But she doesn't dress up like a cultic prostitute, which tells us something. She wouldn't have made it anywhere with Judah. So she just street, dresses up like a street whore and puts a veil over her, and, and Judah is enticed. So he's enticed by her, verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned, her by her, uh, turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So he's going to get duped. You know, it's sort of like the same thing we saw with Leah being disguised with Jacob. You just get the same types of things going on and on again in the, in the family. And then they negotiate the price. It's going to be the price of a kid from the flock, and he doesn't have it with him. You know, it just doesn't fit inside your, your wallet or your knapsack. So he says, okay, we'll negotiate. She says, well, give me a little pledge of your uh, uh, security there. So he uh, gives him, her his signet ring and a cord that would go with that that probably hung around his neck. And then his staff, all this signifies who he is as the head of the family, head of the clan. And so she takes that with her, and then they have sexual relations, and she gets pregnant, which was her, in, her desire. And she goes, verse 19, she goes and, and uh, takes off the veil and puts on the garments of her widowhood again. And then later he's going to fulfill the pledge, which shows a measure of, of, uh, of uh, integrity there. He didn't just go back home and forget about it. He t- has his friend Hira take the kid to her. But he can't find her because Hira's looking for a Kedeshah. He's looking for a cultic prostitute, not a Zona. So he never does find her. He asks, he searches, he can't ever find her. And after a while, Judah says, well, let's just forget about it. We tried, and we can't find her. Then verse 24, came to pass about three months after that Judah was told that Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she's with child as a result of harlotry. And look at his self-righteous hypocrisy. Well, go take her, and we're going to burn her at the stake. Now, this is a pagan uh, punishment. This isn't anything that was ever authorized uh, through, through Scripture. So he, he wants to have her uh, executed because she has she's done it. Now, he's the one whose bad decisions put her in this position to begin with. And, excuse me. It's really bad when the pastor forgets to turn off his cell phone. I didn't even know I had it with me. I don't ever bring it in here. But we see the focus of this thing in, in verses 25 and 26. When she's taken, she sends to him and says, By the man to whom these belong, by the man to whom... Uh, these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Now, he's caught. He, the, she's just got him dead to rights. 
And he has to acknowledge them, and he recognizes what's happened in this whole thing. He says, she is more righteous than I am. Now, that's the interpretive key in this whole section, is because he is making an observation that she's more righteous than he is. He's the one who created this whole scenario and has forced her into this desperate maneuver in order to uh, fulfill her role within the clan because she's family by virtue of marriage. Now, Al Ross, who was uh, my Hebrew professor at Dallas, wrote one of the best commentaries that I've ever read on Genesis called Creation and Blessing, um, <clears throat> makes this comment. He says, The text of Scripture does not cast any moral judgment on Tamar. Delich, now that's a reference to Franz Delich. Uh, some of you know the commentary, Kyle and Delich, uh, about a hundred years old. Classic, very good commentary on the Old Testament. He says, Delich may have been too generous in calling her a saint, but she is presented in the Bible in a most favorable light. See Ruth 12, 4.12. It's not appropriate to judge her by Christian ethics. The point he's making here is we can't judge her by later revelation. Uh, I, I think he's being a little too generous there, frankly, just like Delitz was a little too generous. Uh, it's not appropriate to judge her by Christian ethics, for in her culture at that time, now this is a good statement, for in her culture at that time, her actions, though very dangerous for her, were within the law. I mean, this whole thing with levered marriage and inheritance laws are so foreign to the way we do things that we have to think outside of our own cultural box here. She had the right to have a child by the nearest of kin. This was a, an extremely strong legal right and that, that prote- was designed to protect her. And she had, as it were, a legal contract from Judah that he would uh, marry her to the next son, and he wasn't doing it. So she's having to force his hand. So she plays on the vice of Judah to bear this child and her deception works. Again, we see this theme throughout this section, this theme once again of deception, again and again. So then we have the story of the birth. Then it happened. Uh, so it was when she was giving birth, verse 28. We're told that, uh, verse 27, I came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. That immediately brings back the inheritance struggle between Esau and Jacob. See, the writer, these things happen and they're emphasized for purpose to make sure we make the right connection. It came to pass the time for giving birth. Behold, twins were in a womb, and so it was when she was giving birth. Now, remember what happened with Esau and Jacob? There's that struggle inside the womb. Well, we see the same thing going on here. One of them starts to uh, come out. And his hand comes out, and so the midwife takes a scarlet thread and ties it off on the fingers to identify the firstborn, because the firstborn is the first one out. But then the second one pushes his way past. (laughs) The younger is going to dominate the older. See, that's the theme here that we've seen all the way through. The older, the younger is going to... uh, Take precedence over the, I mean, excuse me, the younger is going to take precedence over the older. And so the, the uh, younger pushes his way out, and 
we're told in verse 29 that it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, how did you break through? Hebrew word there is parats, to break through, to breach, to rupture or tear something. And so therefore he was called parrots because he broke through. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his na- on his hand, and his name was called Zira. Okay, let's get three points of application here before we wrap up. First of all, God brings about justice. He utilizes the principle of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He brings about the principle of you'll reap what you sow. And so in the life of Judah, what has happened? Judah has been bitter against Joseph because Joseph the younger was going to rule over the older brothers. And so what do you have in Judah's own family? You have this competition over inheritance. And now the younger is going to uh, rule over the elder. The older will serve the younger in terms of the twins that are born to him. God uses the same weaknesses and sins to bring about uh, justice. Those who live their life, a lesson here is that those who pursue their life for their own gratification will ultimately deal with the justice of God. Second application is that God's plans are never thwarted by man's sins. God's going to bring about what he desires to bring about, and human sinfulness is not going to is never going to be great enough to destroy or end the plan of God. And then the third thing is that God turns human failures into triumphs of his grace. Because when this story ends with Paris, where the story doesn't end there, it ends at the cross. Because he, this family then becomes a critical link in the whole line all the way down to uh, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though it's one of those odd little stories, once we understand its significance, we learn that God is bringing about his plan. He works it out. That's the providence of God. And that all things that he works all things together for good. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for what you have provided for us and the insights that you give us as you work through history, as you've worked out the plan of your salvation, and just as you worked in the lives of the patriarchs, so you work in the life of each and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to bring about your plans and your purposes. We pray that you would challenge us and encourage us with what we studied, we pray in Christ's name, amen.